Chapter Eight of Isabel. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Isabel, a Romance of the Northern Trail by James Oliver Curwood. Chapter Eight, Little Mystery. Pelletier hung close to the ice-bound coast. He traveled slowly, leading the way for Kazan who strained every muscle in his aged body to drag the sledge. For a time the excitement of what had occurred gave Pelletier a strength which soon began to ebb, but his old weakness did not entirely return. He found that his worst trouble at first was in his eyes. Weeks of fever had enfeebled his vision until the world about him looked new and strange. He could see only a few hundred paces ahead and beyond this little circle everything turned gray and black. Singularly enough, it struck him that there was some humor as well as tragedy in the situation, that there was something to laugh at in the fact that Kazan had but one eye and that he was nearly blind. He chuckled to himself and spoke aloud to the dog. "'Makes me think of the games of hide-and-seek we used to play when we were kids, boy,' he said. She used to tie her handkerchief over my eyes, and then I'd follow her all through the old orchard, and when I caught her it was part of the game she'd have to let me kiss her. Once I bumped into an apple tree. The toe of his snowshoe caught in an ice hummock and sent him face downward into the snow. He picked himself up and went on. "'We played that game till we was grown-ups, old man,' he went on. Last time we played it she was seventeen. Had her hair in a big brown braid, and it all came undone so that when I caught her and took off the handkerchief I could just see her eyes and her mouth laughing at me. And it was that time that I hugged her up closer than ever and told her I was going out to make a home for us. Then I came up here." He stopped and rubbed his eyes and for an hour after that, as he plodded onward, he mumbled things which neither Kazan nor any other living thing could have understood. But whatever delirium found its way into his voice, the fighting spark in his brain remained sane. The igloo and the starving woman whom Blake had abandoned formed the one living picture which he did not for a moment forget. He must find the igloo, and the igloo was close to the sea. He could not miss it, if he lived long enough to travel thirty miles. It did not occur to him that Blake might have lied, that the igloo was farther than he had said, or perhaps much nearer. It was two o'clock when he stopped to make tea. He figured that he had traveled at least eighteen miles. The fact was he had gone but a little over half that distance. He was not hungry and ate nothing, but he fed Kazan heartily of meat. The hot tea, strengthened with a little whiskey, revived him for the time more than food would have done. Twelve miles more at the most,' he said to Kazan. "'We'll make it. Thank God, we'll make it.' If his eyes had been better, he would have seen and recognized the huge snow-covered rock called the Blind Eskimo which was just nine miles from the cabin. As it was, he went on, filled with hope. 
There were sharper pains in his head now, and his legs dragged wearily. Day ended at a little after two, but at this season there was not much change in light and darkness, and Pelletier scarcely noted the difference. The time came when the picture of the igloo and the dying woman came and went fitfully in his brain. There were dark spaces. The fighting spark was slowly giving way, and at last Pelletier dropped upon the sledge. "'Go on, Kazan!' he cried weakly. "'Mush it! Go on!' Kazan tugged with gaping jaws, and Pelletier's head dropped upon the food-filled pack. What Kazan heard was a groan. He stopped and looked back, whining softly. For a time he sat on his haunches, sniffing a strange thing which had come to him in the air. Then he went on, straining a little faster at the sledge and still whining. If Pelletier had been conscious, he would have urged him straight ahead. But old Kazan turned away from the sea. Twice in the next ten minutes he stopped and sniffed the air, and each time he changed his course a little. Half an hour later he came to a white mound that rose up out of the level waste of snow, and then he settled himself back on his haunches, lifted his shaggy head to the dark night sky, and for the second time that day he sent forth the weird, wailing, morning death howl. It aroused Pelletier. He sat up, rubbed his eyes, staggered to his feet, and saw the mound a dozen paces away. Rest had cleared his brain again. He knew that it was an igloo. He could make out the door, and he caught up his lantern and stumbled toward it. He wasted half a dozen matches before he could make a light. Then he crawled in, with Kazan still in his traces close at his heels. There was a musty, uncomfortable odor in the snow house. And there was no sound, no movement. The lantern lighted up the small interior, and on the floor Pelletier made out a heap of blankets and a bearskin. There was no life, and instinctively he turned his eyes down to Kazan. The dog's head was stretched out toward the blankets. His ears were alert. His eyes burned fiercely, and a low, whining growl rumbled in his throat. He looked at the blankets again, moved slowly toward them. He pulled back the bearskin and found what Blake had told him he would find. A woman. For a moment he stared, and then a low cry broke from his lips as he fell upon his knees. Blake had not lied, for it was an Eskimo woman. She was dead. She had not died of starvation. Blake had killed her. He rose to his feet again and looked about him. After all, did that golden hair, that white woman's hair, mean nothing? What was that? He sprang back toward Kazan, his weakened nerves shattered by a sound and a movement from the farthest and darkest part of the igloo. Kazan tugged at his traces, panting and whining, held back by the sledge wedged in the door. The sound came again a human, wailing, sobbing cry. 
With his lantern in his hand, Pelletier darted across to it. There was another roll of blankets on the floor, and as he looked he saw the bundle move. It took him but an instant to drop beside it, as he had dropped beside the other, and as he drew back the damp and partly frozen covering, his heart leaped up and choked him. The lantern light fell full upon the thin, pale face and golden head of a little child. A pair of big frightened eyes were staring up at him, and as he knelt there, powerless to move or speak in the face of this miracle, the eyes closed again, and there came again the wailing, hungry note which Kazan had first heard as they approached the igloo. Pelletier flung back the blanket and caught the child in his arms. "'It's a girl, a little girl!' he almost shouted to Kazan. "'Quick, boy, go back, get out!' He laid the child upon the other blankets, and then thrust back Kazan. He seemed suddenly possessed of the strength of two men as he tore at his own blankets and dumped the contents of the pack out upon the snow. "'She sent us, boy,' he cried, his breath coming in sobbing gasps. "'Where's the milk and the stove?' In ten seconds more he was back in the igloo with a can of condensed cream, a pan, and the alcohol lamp. His fingers trembled so that he had difficulty in lighting the wick, and as he cut open the can with his knife, he saw the child's eyes flutter wide for an instant and then close again. "'Just a minute, a half minute,' he pleaded, pouring the cream into the pan. "'Hungry, eh, little one? Hungry? Starving?' He held the pan close down over the blue flame and gazed terrified at the white little face near him. Its thinness and quiet frightened him. He thrust his finger into the cream and found it warm. "'A cup, Kazan! Why didn't I bring a cup?' He darted out again and returned with a tin basin. In another moment the child was in his arms, and he forced the first few drops of cream between her lips. Her eyes shot open. Life seemed to spring into her little body, and she drank with a loud noise one of her tiny hands gripping him by the wrist. The touch, the sound, the feel of life against him thrilled Pelletier. He gave her half of what the basin contained and then wrapped her up warmly in his thick service blanket so that all of her was hidden but her face and her tangled golden hair. He held her for a moment close to the lantern. She was looking at him now, wide-eyed and wondering, but not frightened. "'God bless your little soul!' he exclaimed, his amazement growing. "'Who are you, and where'd you come from? You ain't more'n three years old if you're an hour. Where's your mama and your papa?' He placed her back on the blankets. "'Now a fire, Kazan,' he said. He held the lantern above his head and found the narrow vent through the snow and ice wall which Blake had made for the escape of smoke. Then he went outside for the fuel, freeing Kazan on the way. In a few minutes more a small bright blaze of almost smokeless larchwood was lighting up and warming the interior of the igloo, 
To his surprise, Pelletier found the child asleep when he went to her again. He moved her gently and carried the dead body of the little Eskimo woman through the opening and half a hundred paces from the igloo. Not until then did he stop to marvel at the strength which had returned to him. He stretched his arms above his head and breathed deeply of the cold air. It seemed as though something had loosened inside of him, that a crushing weight had lifted itself from his eyes. Kazan had followed him, and he stared down at the dog. "'It's gone, Kazan,' he cried in a low, half-credulous voice. "'I don't feel sick any more. It's her.' He turned back to the igloo. The lantern and the fire made a cheerful glow inside, and it was growing warm. He threw off his heavy coat, drew the bearskin in front of the fire, and sat down with the child in his arms. She still slept. Like a starving man, Pelletier stared down upon the little thin face. Gently his rough fingers stroked back the golden curls. He smiled. A light came into his eyes. His head bent lower and lower, slowly and a little fearfully. At last his lips touched the child's cheek, and then his own rough grizzled face, toughened by wind and storm and intense cold, nestled against the little face of this new and mysterious life he had found at the top of the world. Kazan listened for a time, squatted on his haunches. Then he curled himself near the fire and slept. For a long time Pelletier sat rocking gently back and forth, thrilled by a happiness that was growing deeper and stronger in him each instant. He could feel the tiny beat of the little one's heart against his breast. He could feel her breath against his cheek. One of her little hands had gripped him by his thumb. A hundred questions ran through his mind now. Who was this little abandoned mite? Who were her father and her mother, and where were they? How had she come to be with the Eskimo woman and Blake? Blake was not her father. The Eskimo woman was not her mother. What tragedy had placed her here? Somehow he was conscious of a sensation of joy as he reasoned that he would never be able to answer these questions. She belonged to him. He had found her. No one would ever come to dispossess him. Without awakening her, he thrust a hand into his breast pocket and drew out the photograph of the sweet-faced girl who was going to be his wife. It did not occur to him now that he might die. The old fear and the old sickness were gone. He knew that he was going to live. "'You,' he breathed softly, you did it, and I know you'll be glad when I bring her down to you. And then to the little sleeping girl. And if you ain't got a name, I guess I'll have to call you Mystery. How is that? My little Mystery. When he looked from the picture again, little Mystery's eyes were open and gazing up at him. He dropped the pitcher and made a lunge for the pan of cream warming before the fire. The child drank as hungrily as before, with Pelletier babbling incoherent nonsense into her baby ears. 
When she had done, he picked up the photograph, with a sudden and foolish inspiration that she might understand. "'Looky!' he cried. "'Pretty!' To his astonishment and joy, Little Mystery put out a hand and placed the tip of her tiny forefinger on the girl's face. Then she looked up into Pelletier's eyes. "'Mama!' she lisped. Pelletier tried to speak, but something rose like a knot in his throat and choked him. A fire leaped all at once through his body. The joy of that one word blinded him with hot tears. When he spoke at last, his voice was broken, like a sobbing woman's. "'That's it,' he said. "'You're right, little one. She's your mama.'" End of chapter 8 Recording by Roger Moline.